Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And uh, today Sarah's going to go ahead and go first. Woohoo! I'm going first. What are we learning about, Sarah? We're talking about where scrap metal goes. We're talking about the special brand of picker I've come to know and love. <laughs> the scrappers, the people who sell scrap metal, and where they go. And scrap metal in general. I, I think it's going to be exciting because these people I've come to know and love in my line of work. That's awesome. Yeah. So where do they go? You know, they see them going on the side of the road, picking up trash. They're in alleys going through people's garbage cans. Where are these people going? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? So the the junk man is an old stereotype. Um, we've had junk man forever. There's probably been pickers that go through junk since people started collecting junk. So there have always been people that collect scrap to make money. Specifically, pre-World War One, they were known as the rag, rag and bone man. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Oh, definitely, yeah. If it, it, The rag man featured prominently in uh, the book Farmer Boy by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so they used to collect unwanted household items. They'd go to your house and be like, do you have any old pots and pans? Do you have any old rags? Do you have basically any um, household stuff and then they'd go and they'd try to sell it to other merchants or they'd try to sell it themselves in general and they'd generally be on foot or they'd have like a little cart and I always picture a cart with like a donkey because I'm obsessed with donkeys. I mean that's probably what they would use (laughs) or a mule. Yeah because donkeys are amazing and then today dumpster diving is done by people who do all kinds of stuff. I mean I'm I've dumpster dived in the past um, especially in the college town I grew up in, when the college students move out, they leave really good stuff. So I know a lot of people dumpster dive as a hobby and just generally, and it can be dangerous. So if you dumpster dive, be very, very careful and make sure you have permission to go in dumpsters. And a tetanus shot update. And a tetanus shot update. Don't get tetanus. There are also um, dumpster divers, the anti-consumer People, the freegans who who take food out of dumpsters. But I'm not going to talk about those people. I'm talking about this the scrap metal people. The people that are specifically looking for scrap metal so that they can sell it. And so scrapyards used to, they've existed for a long time, but they really had their, started to have their heyday as soon as we started driving cars. Scrapyards used to have all kinds of like wagon wheels and metal bits. They, they did back before cars but as soon as we started driving cars it seems like we started having scrap yards and auto salvage yards and junkyards in general so what exactly is scrap metal scrap metal is a metallic material or or any product that contains metal that is capable of being recycled and reused and a scrapyard or junkyard, or sometimes um, the business is called a metal recycling yard, they have a few differences, but they're pretty much the same, is a business that specializes in buying people's scrap metal. Usually they buy it by weight, 
And then they either sell it in bulk to other industries to be used by the industry, or they'll sell it privately. Places that have vehicles, like auto salvage yards, they will generally, if the car and the parts in the car are good enough, they will actually have it open so that you can actually buy the parts out of it. So why should we recycle metal? So scrapyards and junkyards are extremely important and probably going into the future ecologically because metal is extremely, extremely recyclable, especially steel. Steel is unique in that you can recycle it and reuse it over and over and over and over, and it doesn't really have any stress issues like paper and plastic or glass does. So metal is awesome that it minimizes the use of taking metal from virgin sources. So I saw a, a, a documentary last night I watched, and they were saying that taking recycling metal cuts down the greenhouse gases by 97% if you take then from taking it from virgin sources. So we're saving the environment and from waste and air pollution and space and landfills. So what does a scrapyard do with it after it comes in? I don't know. <laughs> so if they don't resell it at the yard by parts, like if they have a salvage yard and you go and you're like, I need a part for my old Pontiac Firebird and they don't resell that stuff, they will take it and shred it. And these are enormous shredders. So scrapyard shred, crush, package or bale up bulk metal um, to sell in bulk and then ship out. Some Sometimes they go overseas. Um, sometimes they stay in the United States and they're they're resold to industry like steel industry would steel industry will take that metal and heat it up in a really hot furnace and make new stuff out of it. So the scrapyards have shredders, they have crushers, they have stuff that will compact and basically so they can sell it in bulk and scrapyards sell to other businesses that reuse them. They sell the car parts to mechanics. They sell steel and other metals in bulk to construction, like I said. And stuff like bicycles, um, they may not throw it in the scrap. They, you, can, you may actually be able to go and buy a nice bicycle and rehab it. Um, lawnmowers, often scrapyards will sell lawnmowers that just need to be rehabbed. And appliances, people throw out a lot of them. You get your really nice new appliance and your washer works just fine, but... You want to get rid of your old washer, they'll take that and people will, will resell it too and, and find it and find good use. So sometimes scrapyards will have that stuff that you can buy that is whole that you can just buy from them. So not only are they taking that scrap and bulk selling it, they may also have that lawnmowers and appliances and bicycles as well. So that's something to think about. If you're ever, you know, out looking for junk to buy. <laughs> so what kinds of stuff are scrappers looking for? And I'm a, I am come across them in my line of business because they come to our estate sales generally when we're cleaning out houses and want to go through our dumpster. Hmm. So we don't have the time to take stuff to the scrapyard generally. So we generally just let people we know who are scrappers go through it. And they'll go through and they'll go and resell the scrap. And when they, uh, when I've talked to them, they've basically given me a rundown of the stuff that they're looking for. 
And it's always interesting to me how much metal is really scrappable. So if you're going to get into this line of work, it is a lot of work, and don't expect to get really rich off of it. A lot of the scrappers I talk to, their their trip will maybe net them $100 per trip, and that's usually a good three hours worth of work. So that's it's still okay. still 33 bucks an hour. Yeah, it's, it's okay. That's if more than I've ever been paid. So. <laughs> that's true. So... Is it the first thing that um, they told me that is you want to look? Is it is the metal ferrous? Is it magnetic or is it non-ferrous? Because that's a that's a difference. So magnetic stuff like steel, you can generally find in computer cases, old microwaves, steel screws, metal boxes. Brake drums and rotors tend to be cast iron. Grills from old bar- barbecue, old barbecue grills. Old clawfoot bathtubs, they're oh. all cast iron, yeah. which I didn't know. I was like, holy crap, they're cast iron? I knew they're nightmarishly heavy. They're ridiculously heavy. Carbide tip drills apparently are a holy grail. Old cars, of course, and appliances. And then for non-magnetic metals, um, you're looking for aluminum. You can find, and I was surprised aluminum was sellable. Like, aluminum is everywhere. Yeah, I... It's my understanding that the process of processing aluminum, it, it's really toxic. Mm-hmm. So I could see where recycling it would have its appeal in terms of not having, even if it's difficult to re-smelt it, it might be easier to dispose of waste products mm-hmm. from already refined aluminum. That's just a guess. So uh, wire, Cat5 and VX uh, cable. This goes into under my copper wire. I should have mentioned copper wire. So you can do aluminum, and then we're going to talk about copper, and I guess copper is a huge thing right now. So you can cat five, and um, other cables are full of copper, but you just have to watch out that some wiring that you think is copper is actually steel coat or copper-coated steel wire. So if you're looking at wire, just make sure to cut it and look at it to make sure it's not actually steel that has a copper coating because it's not worth as much. Copper wire is based on weight and you're going to have to talk to your scrapyard to see what they're looking for. Generally, you're looking for that bendy, thick wire that's going to be the best one for you. Power cords, appliance wire, AC adapters, Christmas lights. I had no idea. Wow, they have actual value? Yeah. You can cut the Christmas lights off. This is what I've heard. You can cut the Christmas lights. And even though... So you have to be careful with this because you have to think about your time. If you're cutting off Christmas lights, it's taking your time out of your you know, $95 or whatever you're going to make at the scrapyard. So you got to kind of pick and choose. Yeah, but you could do that in front of the TV. Yeah, that's true. Kind of like folding laundry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how to tell copper? It's patina. And patina, by patina, I mean when it rusts. Rust is different. But when it oxidizes, it turns green. So old tu- old tube TVs are extremely dangerous, but they also have copper wire in them. So just be care- careful. Of course, copper pipes and please get copper pipes legally don't steal (laughs) copper pipes out of houses please also don't steal the copper wiring out of our barns oh wait you can't somebody already did (laughs) and old motors old motors tend to have copper windings 
Aluminum, I guess, extruded aluminum, like old hammered or milled aluminum. And extruded aluminum is the best. And I had no idea that there was a thing called extruded aluminum. But this aluminum is like pasta. It's like, well, it's made by like pasta. I get you. I get you. Okay. It's just a, it's a really funny mental it's picture. For, but it's like it, it goes through a pasta roller kind mm-hmm. of machine and it's formed and pressed through extruder. There's also cast aluminum. And generally that kind of stuff is not obviously as worth as much as steel and copper. But aluminum is everywhere. So it's an easy find. Of course, Baking trays and old pots and pans that are aluminum. Oh, man. Very scrappable. Very, very scrappable. So you find them everywhere. Yeah, they will pick that stuff out of our dumpster in a minute. Yeah. And then, of course, there's brass. Brass is a little bit harder to find, but old bathroom fittings, door handles, hardware, appliance, plug-ins, had no idea. Yeah. Me either. Yeah, I'm I learning guess, so much today. Yeah, and decorative housewares. There's a lot of decorative housewares. Brass had a heyday, and it's kind of coming back. Brass goes on and off fashion, and it's currently on. Really? Yeah, people love brass again. Gross. Yeah. Sorry, but, everyone. <laughs> if you love brass, sorry. But. We, we love you. You can have all of it. <laughs> and then there's lead, and apparently lead acid batteries can give you some good money. So, yeah, people will just pick up old lead-acid batteries, portable chargers, leaded glass windows, so actually the lead from leaded glass windows, roof sheeting, and how to tell lead generally is it's heavy and it's extremely soft. And then, of course, there are the rarer metals, like platinum and silver, and these are extremely rare to find, but... They tend to be in old electronics, and old catalytic catalytic converters have palladium and cadmium. So if you have an old catalytic catalytic converter sitting around in your yard, you should probably take it to scrap or give it to your favorite scrapper. (laughs) (laughs) And then stainless steel. So stainless steel um, is very weakly magnetic, so it's I would put it in the ferrous metal category only because it's only weakly magnetic there are different grades of it but generally it is also very scrappable so the scrap yards have a certain percentage of contaminants that they will allow in the metal scrap so generally when you have the scrap my good friend who's a scrapper has told me that you have to do quite a bit of cleaning on stuff especially aluminum because they tend to have screws plastic, all kinds of stuff attached to it. Of course, you have to strip your wires before you take it. And then you can take it to the scrapyard. And generally what you do is you have, if you have a truck full and if the scrapyard does it this way, that you will drive through, they will get a weight. And then when you empty, you will drive back out and they'll subtract your weight. And that's how how they do it for the larger stuff. That sounds pretty efficient. Yeah. And stuff like lead acid batteries and stuff, you get paid per battery. It's my understanding of it. I have never been to the scrapyard. I will probably go as a field trip because I'm very curious now. But it sounds interesting. We could meet a junkyard dog. Yes. Oh, I bet they're nice. Yes. (laughs) I know they're not supposed to be, but I bet they're treated pretty well. Yeah, generally. Generally. And they're taken care of by the old scrapper guys who are usually very sweet. Exactly. Yeah. 
So you're, you're like, oh, that sounds amazing. How do I get started? First of all, I want you to think about safety. You're, the stuff you're going to need is, I suggest, eye protection. <laughs> <laughs> to get started very minimally, I would say tin snips, gloves. You need a magnet to tell if stuff is magnetic. You need a vehicle that you don't mind putting old junk in. A wire stripper will probably save you a lot of time. Mm. A drill and a screwdriver to take stuff apart. Obviously, be careful if you're taking apart an old tube TV. Don't get electrocuted. If you're taking apart a micro uh, microwave, look on YouTube to see what parts of a microwave are. I don't want you to get any of the radioactive dust in your lungs or anything. <laughs> And call around to different scrapyards and get their prices and how they pay and how clean your scrap has to be. And that's how, what scrappers do, where do they go, and how, if you really want to, get started. That's amazing. <laughs> I had no idea so much stuff was scrappable. I had no idea either. I, it really points toward my theory that in the future we will be mining landfills. I I'm thinking you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Baking sheets. And of Baking course, sheets. of course they're scrappable. It makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have ever occurred to me. All those terrible aluminum pots from the 80s and 90s that <laughs> I grew up with. I'm just thinking they're sitting in a landfill somewhere. Probably. I doubt anyone scrapped them. Probably not. Yeah. Maybe they did. I don't know. Are there uh, sort of turf issues with scrappers at all? That you know of? Not that I know of. I'm sure there probably are. They all seem to be jovial, nice people every time I meet them. If you kind of think about it, they're if they don't have regular jobs and this is their regular gig, they're generally going to be very nice to you because they want to make sure that you will let them come back and go through your dumpster. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> starting, starting nonsense would be poor business yeah and i don't know about turf wars between other scrappers from what i can tell they all talk to each other here and they all can tell each other where the best treasures are that's cool yeah that's nice yeah i i find them fascinating people and i like alternative ways of making money besides sitting in front of a computer which is funny because I'm sitting in front of a computer right now. But <laughs> I appreciate ha people who have different hustles. I think it's cool. Well, thank you, Sarah. Yes. I'm doing a completely unrelated topic. <laughs> uh, I'm just to remind listeners, we don't actually tell each other what we're covering. So I had no idea Sarah was going to talk about scrap metal. And Sarah has no idea that I'm going to talk about where did the Gros Michel banana go? Yes, I want to know. A.K.A. the Big Mike. Apparently the best banana that's ever existed. I've heard that. There's a, there's a banana community on YouTube. <laughs> of course there is. There are banana enthusiasts. It's very interesting. So what is a Gros... Why am I talking about Gros Michel Spelled G-R-O-S-M-I-C-H-E-L. It's a French name. Why am I talking about this banana? So, it's a banana cultivar that was grown extensively, internationally, multi-hemispherically in the pre-1950s. It started in Southeast Asia, probably Malaysia, but Polynesians in general are responsible for banana cultivation. And uh, spread of bananas and different varieties. There are a lot of varieties of bananas. 
And in the early 1800s, French colonizers brought to the Caribbean, first to Martinique and then to Jamaica, the Gros Michel, specifically this type of banana. It's a popular export banana, or was a popular export banana to Europe and North America, and was grown all over Central and South America. When you hear about or read about banana republics, the original ones would grow the Gros Michel, a.k.a. Big Mike. I kind of want to call it the Big Mike. The Big Mike. It's that's a great name for a banana cultivar. <laughs> so that's what they grew. It has a thick skin. It's very sweet, soft flesh. It is sort of discussed that the banana flavoring that we're used to is more much more closely related to the Gros Michel banana than the current banana cultivar. And so I'll talk about the current banana cultivar in a moment, but it it, it tasted kind of like fake banana, but probably but from all the people I saw eating it on videos, they were like, this is delicious. So and a lot of people hate fake banana flavor. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's full on banana Laffy Taffy. I think it from what someone has told me that it tastes like banana pudding banana. Wow. That it's just the best banana ever. <laughs> like, wow, I've never had one. I hope someday I get to. So why has Sarah never had one? Let me tell you. I've never had one either, but I'm also allergic to bananas. So this was kind of a funny <laughs> thing to research. But in starting in the 1920s and then escalating to a full-on crisis in the 1950s, a blight called Panama disease made it commercially unviable to continue growing Gros Michel bananas for export throughout Europe and North America. So the Gros Michel banana is technically not gone. It's still grown in Malaysia and Thailand. You can still purchase it in parts of China, Afri- different parts of Africa, usually Eastern Africa, and also uh, Japan occasionally. But you can't really get it in the U.S. You can't really get it in Canada. It's hard to get in Europe. It's hard to get in Western Africa. Uh, it's probably hard to get in the Middle East. So that blight caused such a crisis that they had to develop and find what we now eat for bananas. It's a variety called the Cavendish banana. And it is a little more bland, but it is also easier to, like, easy, easy to ship. Not easier, but it's easier than a lot of wild bananas or... There are, there are so many different types of bananas. There's so many different... It's called a cultivar. And I'll get into banana genetics. But I wanted to do this little tidbit because it's kind of funny. So there's a 1920s song called Yes, We Have No Bananas. <laughs> and it's thought to be linked to the beginning of the blight issues. And an even more fun fact is that in... 1932, in Belfast, there were non-sectarian protests against the government. So Catholics and Protestants were all for protesting the government instead of each other. And it was the song, Yes, We Have No Bananas, was sung by them because it was one of the few songs that both factions knew really well. <laughs> so, And it was also loosely related to what they were protesting. They were protesting basically benefits and not being able to access things like food and food security issues 
but both sides knew, yes, we have no bananas very well. And so that was their protest song, <laughs> which I think is really sort of charming. It's a real, this blight has ended up bringing together two sects of Irish society that have had a lot of conflict. I'm just imagining the equivalent today would be all of us like on the left and the right coming together to protest something and singing like Gangnam style or something <laughs> together, <laughs> doing the dance. I don't know. Uh, maybe the Macarena. Oh, there you go. Macarena. it's kind of old, but it yeah. was really popular. Yeah. So why did this blight have such an easy time wiping out such a, what would be considered a hardy, sturdy banana? So banana is really tricky to breed. Major commercial breeds are what's called triploid. So viable seeds are rare. So let's do a little crash course on genetics. Yay! So humans are, by and large, but not universally, diploid. And what that means is we have two sets of chromosomes. One from mom, one from dad. And bananas have three sets of chromosomes. Two from mom, one from dad. Or two from dad, one from mom. Or, I mean, it, they're, they're not really gendered plants, but, you know. Two from the female equivalent, one from the male equivalent, or vice versa. And so... Sometimes you actually end up with two from mom, two from dad. So that's tetraploid. Sometimes you end up with one from mom and nothing from dad or vice versa. So it's just kind of a mess. And viable seeds are very rare. But bananas are easy to clone. They're easy to grow from little root components called corms. Oh. And so that's how French colonizers got them to the Caribbean was just corms. So... The Gros-Michel bananas and also currently the Cavendish bananas are all clones of each other. This increases susceptibility to anything because if one of them can fall to it, all of them can fall to it. And the blight is also specifically resistant to fungicides. It's fungus. And it is very difficult to control with any sort of chemical operations. Mostly, and uh, I'm, I'm forgetting one thing, so it sort of integrates itself with the soil. So it essentially becomes part of the environment in which the bananas are grown. And so it can infect new plantings and things like that. So there are breeding programs working really hard to make Panama disease resistant cultivars, but solely of the Cavendish banana that we currently are used to eating. There's not a lot of work to make Panama disease-resistant cultivars of the Gros Michel banana. But why? I'm not entirely sure why. So the Gros Michel is amazingly delicious. And part of it may be corporate. Yeah. It may also be that it might just be harder to breed a resistant Gros Michel. Huh. I wonder if maybe the Gros Michel doesn't keep as well and can't be shipped as well. Entirely possible. Yeah. I I don't know the answer to that question. Mm. Uh, So let's talk about Panama disease, because I talked about where the Gros Michel went. It's still grown in uh, parts of Asia, and bananas are grown in a huge number of places. They're grown in Australia. They're grown in Eastern Africa. They're grown in the Middle East. They're grown all over Asia. They're grown in Central and South America. And then there are bananas in botanical gardens, too. Mm -hmm. Great. They are a very popular fruit. I really wish I wasn't allergic to them Mm -hmm. because they're very nutritious. 
yeah, so that's kind of sad. But let's talk about Panama disease. I wonder if you're allergic to Gros Michelle. I also wonder that. I, be, my allergy is also known as oral allergy mm-hmm. syndrome, and it's because I'm allergic to ragweed. Oh. I know. It's really strange. I'm allergic to melon, cucumber, raw zucchini, and banana. Hmm. It's very annoying. Yeah, it sounds annoying. It makes me sound very precious, I think, to be like, <laughs> I'm allergic to I'm bananas. I'm allergic to all the things. Like it, it happens. Yeah. It makes my mouth itch. I break out in a rash. Oh, that's awful. So it's not deadly or anything. It's just annoying. So Panama disease has had an interesting sort of journey itself. So I'll talk about that as well. So it's a fungus. Fusarium oxysporum. Might be mispronouncing that, especially because hmm. I hand wrote it. <laughs> it's largely resistant to fungicides. It was first ID'd in Panama, and it spread north and south through the Panamanian Peninsula. Or it's an isthmus? Yeah, through Panama. I, yeah, I don't know either. It I like the word isthmus. 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 <laughs> I can't say it. So it spread through uh, Central America and South America. And then the Cavendish banana was found to be resistant to the Panama blight that was from Panama, the 1950s blight. So that's what we eat now. Right around the 1950s when the Cavendish banana becomes the commercial banana, the export banana, Malaysia begins growing Cavendish bananas for export. And a new strain of Panama disease probably endemic to Malaysia, but might have also been imported with the Cavendish and evolved Mm -hmm. in Malaysia, starts knocking out Cavendish bananas. It's called the TR4. They're they're called races of this fusarium blight, which is, I think, kind of funny. So race one was the one that wiped out the Gros-Michel banana in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And race four is the one that is currently crawling from Malaysia to pretty much the rest of you know Indonesia. It's in Australia. It's in China. It's in Eastern Africa. It's in the Middle East. I think they found it in Kew Gardens in England. Wow, that's weird. So it hasn't made it to Central and South America, but it's kind of a matter of time. No. Well, yeah. So the TR4 is faster at killing and spreading. They haven't yet found... So the the Latin American banana growers are working really hard to breed a resistant banana. They're working with conventional breeding methods, hybrids, genetic engineering, and none of it's really, especially genetic engineering, hasn't really panned out yet. Oh, that's sad. They, They haven't really met the sort of requirements of an export banana, but they're getting closer. That's partially why you keep seeing articles that pop up of like, bananas are going to go extinct, but then the bananas haven't yet gone extinct. Like, I've been hearing that since I was a child. I've heard about that about coffee, too. And it's the type of thing where there's so much work being done in the background that it doesn't get written about. There are so many hardworking, like brilliant people trying to save bananas. And Thank you. Save coffee. So I'm going to talk a little bit just kind of about bananas, because why not? Bananas are, botanically speaking, classified as a berry. And the bulk of bananas consumed by humans 
are descendants of two parent species, hmm. Musa, or maybe Musa, Acuminata, and Musa bulbasiana. The Musa Acuminata is the A, the Musa bulbasiana is the B, and I had mentioned before that bananas are triploid or sometimes tetraploid, sometimes diploid. That A and B differentiation is a way to classify bananas based on traits that they share with one or the other parent species. Mm. And then they will be called things like AA bananas, AB bananas, AAB bananas, ABB bananas, etc. It's estimated that there are between 300 and 1,000 banana cultivars. What? And there's pink bananas. There's bananas that are bright orange with red peels. There's those little funny red bananas that you get like see once a year in the tropical section of the grocery. Bananas are a tremendous fruit in terms of social impact and human use. And there's a sort of hemispheric difference between how bananas are classified culinarily. Okay. So in the Western Hemisphere, you have what are called dessert bananas, which are typically eaten raw, and plantains, which are typically cooked. Oh, I love plantains. So dessert bananas and plantains can encompass a lot of different cultivars and even different species. There isn't such a firm distinction between dessert and plantain in the Eastern Hemisphere. There may be bananas that are typically eaten cooked, but also eaten raw. Or ones that are only eaten raw that we would have ended up classifying as plantains. It's a little more, I guess, slushy. And that makes sense because they were first domesticated in Papua New Guinea. They were used for food, fiber, and brewing. Like, it's an extremely old food Mm -hmm. in the Eastern Hemisphere. It is a 300-year-old tops food in... No, it's 250-year-old food tops in the western hemisphere huh in terms of being grown culinarily being grown there yeah huh interesting oh and they're also slightly radioactive because they're fairly high in potassium and potassium 40 is an isotope of potassium it's slightly unstable no idea yeah so bananas are slightly radioactive one banana is approximately one percent of your daily average radiation dose oh okay so unless well, that's good. Unless you're eating a hundred bananas on top of like going on a plane and doing a lot of other things, and you're gonna have a rough day if you're eating a hundred bananas. <laughs> you're gonna have a rough week. You're really. gonna die from potassium poisoning probably before then, or you have to poop bricks. It would be rough. It would be a rough day. People will tell you bananas are radioactive. It's very slight. It's significantly less than say going on an airplane. So Gros-Michel bananas are still around, but they're not very common. And the Cavendish bananas are still around and very common. But there's real concern that unless a fusarium blight resistant version is developed, and it was developed in the 50s, like it happened. So it's not like it's an impossible task, but it's going to have to happen at some point. So maybe within our lifetime, we may end up reminiscing about the Cavendish banana or being like, man, 
Those bananas were gross when I was growing up. These bananas are amazing. What's the deal with the gross bananas we ate while we were growing up? I know. I hope it's like that. (laughs) I do too. And it's entirely possible. I do wonder, I couldn't find a lot of information, but I do wonder about people's reactions to the Cavendish banana after the Gros Michel became unavailable. It would be hard to, I guess, find people that really remember the switchover. I mean, there are some, there are certainly people alive who would remember it, but Mm -hmm. I don't know that in the 1950s, when it had started in the 20s and was sort of sliding into not extinction, but commercial extinction. People were really focusing on whether bananas tasted the same. <laughs> you know, there were there's like a world war and a massive global economic depression, and you know, the, the people were busy. They were busy. There were things to do. If you are listening to this and perhaps remember what bananas tasted like pre 1950, feel free to write us a letter because I'm pretty sure you don't use email. <laughs> Plus, it's fun to get letters. Yeah, I like letters. Mm-hmm. I'm just imagining that person, like, I hope their entire life afterwards wasn't like, bananas used to be so good. Yeah. And now the new bananas are a lie. <laughs> yeah. They're not. The, it's like eating a plantain raw. Plantains taste like potatoes. Ooh. Yeah. Raw. Yeah. You really have to cook them for the sweetness to come out. I wonder if it's something like that. Like, it's just eating a cheap imitation of a wonderful banana or something to them. I don't know. I'd like to know. It'd be cool. Yeah. It would be It would be cool. I'm sorry I was sarcastic earlier. I would actually like to know if you're listening <laughs> to this <laughs> and remember the banana switchover. The banana switchover of the 1950s. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So you have a reuse project, I believe. I do. My reuse project is something I desperately want to do. So you take old glass bead jewelry, you know, you can find old jewelry, old cheap glass bead jewelry, old plastic beads, and you can take them and you can string them up in windows for sun catchers. And this is if you have like old broken jewelry and you just want to reuse it or you can buy jewelry in bulk at someplace like a thrift store or eBay, eBay. Mm-hmm. Then you can string them up and use them as beautiful decorations. Maybe you got a boho vibe going on. There you go. You got a pretty sun catcher in your window. That sounds really fun. I'd like to do that. Yeah, I really want to do it. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. There's a fruit store on our street. It's run by a freak. And he keeps good things to eat, but you should hear him speak. When you ask him anything, he never answers no. He just yeses you to death, and as he takes your dough, he tells you yes. We have no bananas. We have no bananas today. With fling beans and onions, cabbages and scallions, and all kinds of fruit and say. We have an old-fashioned tomato, a Long Island potato. But yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Business got so good with him, he wrote home to say, 
store there was but you can Someone asked for sparrow grass, and then the whole quartet all answered, yes, we got a no bananas. We got no bananas today. Our eggs are delicious, but they act suspicious. They look like they passed away. And if you try some of our finish, we'll tell you your finish. But yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. You got a strawberry pie? Yes, I don't think we got strawberry pie. You got coconut pie? Yes, I don't think we got coconut pie. Well, I'll have one cup of coffee. We got no coffee. Well, what do you got? I got a banana. Oh, you got a banana. Yes, we got an open banana, no banana, no banana. We got an open banana today. I tell you, no banana. Hey, Ariana, you got an open banana? Why, well, this man, he's a no believer what I say. Now, what do you want? So you want to buy twelve for a quarter, Mister? Well, just a minute. I'm going to call my daughter. Just a minute. Hey. Ariana, you got a piano? Yes, no, banana. Yes, banana, no. Yes, we got no bananas today. No bananas. 